0: Welcome, listeners, to a new installment of the 2020 season of Praxis. If you're starting with this episode, you can go back and listen to the trailer or last week's episode for some more information on the show. That's all very easy to do if you're subscribed, and if you aren't subscribed, you should be. You can do that at all the places you listen to podcasts by going to praxisradio.com and clicking on Praxis. This season is a time travel project returning to a radio show road trip I took in the summer of 2015. We aren't going in order, and this week we will be covering major ground, from Denver, Colorado, to Glover, Vermont, and back again, to explore some projects very near to my heart as, confession, both a theater kid and a history nerd. We'll start in Denver, where my amazing host, Deborah threw me a backyard welcome barbecue so that I could meet many radical activists that I might want to interview at once. There, I met members of the Romero Theater Troupe. I went to their rehearsal the next day and was welcomed enthusiastically. I also came home with quite a few files from daughter of the troupe Lily learning to use my field recorder and headphones. Can I take your picture? Yeah, I can't um, hear myself yet because you're not talking yet. This is a new one. You recorded yeah. everything uh, here.
1: We'll go through each of them once, except for Melka, we need to really spend time on. Um, you guys ready to right, have some fun? Let's do it. Time to get off our statue. Um, yeah.
0: Okay. This rehearsal gave a sneak peek of the types of stories the Romero Truth tells about Ben Salmon, a Catholic conscientious objector jailed during World War I, about Frenchie, a trans man fighting for his rights long before his identity would be recognized in Colorado, about Rita Martinez, who led protests every Columbus Day in Pueblo, the birthplace of the holiday, and about Flaming Milka. A 19-year-old woman who became a labor leader during the coal strikes in Colorado in 1927 here's my interview with Jim Walsh who founded the Romero troop from August 21st, 2020. <speaking in Spanish> Well, if you are down to dive in, I guess I'll just start by having you introduce yourself and talk a little bit about who you are and the work that you do.
1: Yeah, my name is Jim Walsh. I'm a professor of political science and history at the University of Colorado Denver. I've taught there, this is my 23rd year. I specialize in the history and politics of labor, working class organizing, immigration and Irish American history and politics. About 20 years ago, I began using theater in my history classes. I just couldn't stand to teach history in the way it was traditionally taught with forced memorization and testing Students memorize data and take a test on it and sit passively through lectures, um, what Paulo Freire calls the banking method of education. Mm -hmm. And so I, these were, I wasn't teaching small classes. I was teaching uh, classes that were regularly enrolling 150, 180, up to 200 students. And I boldly decided to throw out exams and Asked my students to create and perform uh, short plays about events we were studying with no idea how that would work or where it would go and without any theater background myself. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it was pretty bold and it worked. The students, after sort of reacting nervously um, at the beginning, really embraced the project and made it into... A really wonderful expression of the humanity and the events that we're studying, not just the intellectual questions and paradigms, but but the humanity. It changed the classroom. It changed my relationship with students. It changed my philosophy of teaching and learning. It changed um, the way my department viewed my work and viewed, you know how history is to be taught. It led to me being essentially fired (laughs) the, uh, the, um, the class size grew and grew and popularity of the class grew. And my colleagues noticed the students were all talking about this class and this this theater and some of them were excited and others were threatened by this. And so there was an effort to moved me out of the department, but the students rallied and formed an organization, um, brought in some community organizations that we had worked with to support the effort and convinced the dean to overrule the decision to discontinue my contract. Uh, I wasn't on any sort of tenure track situation, so I was vulnerable. And so the dean investigated the situation and overruled the decision forced the department to keep me which never happens in IRA. <laughs> so
0: no. Yeah.
1: It's, it's a kind of a roller coaster I felt vindication, but I also was trapped. I couldn't advance in this department. I was they sort of stuck me into a corner and you know, I was tucked away in this corner. I couldn't go anywhere. I felt like I was in a box. So the political science department reached out to me a few years later and recruited me into their department, which I've been in ever since. So that's a little bit of how this started. After using theater in my classroom about five years, I thought, wow, if it's having this impact in my classroom, it would have a big impact in the community. And I was just beginning a kind of an activist part of my life and beginning to attend rallies and demonstrations and to think about community organizing. And So I thought this would be a powerful way to contribute to the community organizing already happening in Denver, but to bring this sort of organic theater dimension to that community organizing. So I just called some former students and brought together a small group and our first play was a biography of Oscar Romero. And we didn't know I I had heard of him a few times, but I didn't know a lot about him. I knew there was a film made about him. But the more we learned about him, the more taken we were with his story and we thought this was exactly what we were trying to do in our work and so we decided to name our our troupe after him in that moment actually it happened right we we're backstage about to be introduced to perform this story of Oscar Romero and the, the host of the night poked his head back in the curtains and said real quick what do you call yourself <laughs> <laughs> and I and I didn't I didn't hesitate I said the Romero troupe
0: and it stuck.
1: It stuck. I mean, that's, it was just everyone was just realized in that moment how perfect that was. So so that was um, about 15 and a half years ago. And we were about seven people at that time. And we, we really, we knew we had something unique but that no one else was doing. There, there was a lot of professional theaters that were doing and are doing social justice related work. But they had hierarchies and directors and budgets and fundraising efforts and trained actors. And, 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 and it was a very different feel. So we knew we had something egalitarian, grassroots, that no one else had. Maybe even around the country, because we really didn't have any idea what all volunteer community theater looked like nationally. We do now because we've since connected with a lot of groups, and there's a lot of groups out there isolated. And the reason they never, the reason they don't know about each other is, they don't have budgets to, to travel and to go and connect with each other. There's not a, there's not a conference for radical grassroots community, all volunteer theater. Mm-hmm. There's conferences for radical theater that is sort of encased in professional theater circles or universities or institutions, but not none for kind of independent grassroots the way that we do what we do. so so it it blew up, it took off it sailed in the place none of us could ever imagine. within a few years we had you know over 50 members regularly participating. We had two to 300 people at all of our shows that we performed. We feel like we formed a a niche in the community that wasn't uh, being filled. And that was people, the circles of people who are active in in rallies, demonstrations, organizing efforts, educators, circles of educators, and kind of an intersectional coming together of different movements. That all of the, that sort of energy in those communities didn't have a theater component that they felt was theirs. So we became that. We were very rooted in the immigrant rights movement. Very rooted in labor and workers' rights movements. Civil rights, homelessness, environmentalism. There's a, there's a kind of a string LGBTQ issues. There's kind of a strand of issues that have always united us. Kind of I, I guess you could you could say human dignity is uh, has always been the core. And so our membership has always been a cross representation that that has tentacles in all these movements. And our performances touch upon these movements because there's always a story being told about one, this one and that one and this one. And and seeing that they're that they're actually the same movement mm-hmm. that they're they're all fighting for this this higher place this king called the beloved community. Mm-hmm. So the Romero troop runs itself. It's not a it's not a structured organization. It's not a hierarchical organization. It's just a circle of people. Anyone can show up and join the circle, and per- jump into the work. But no one's expected to show up every week. No one's expected to do X, Y, and Z. It's simply open for anyone who wants to contribute a little bit of time or a lot of time and do what they can. Um, but there's there's never an expectation. This is your responsibility. You do this. You do that. And people really like that people really seem comfortable with that. And sometimes people will come for once a month. You'll see them. We have people who we see once a year, but they keep coming back.
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. I want to ask just about, just as a, a history nerd myself who shies away from pursuing teaching or getting deeper into it because of how it was taught to me. I'm really curious about how what you've learned about teaching history in a in a popular sense and a formal sense from this idea that you shared a minute ago around the ways that movements are porous and all kind of interconnected. This is kind of a leading question, but do you think theater is a good way to communicate that kind of holistic nature of history that it's so hard to communicate if you're thinking in this linear
1: model? Absolutely. Theater is the people's classroom. And and, and and it always has been. It always has been. I mean, one only has to look at the history of theater to see that it's always been a tool of resistance. That's the heart of the, of the art. And it became, there was a place, a time, I think in the 90s and early 2000s when Going to see a show didn't feel somehow uh, like a form of resistance. It didn't feel like anything was happening that was shaking the tree, that, that power structures were somehow being poked and prodded by the show. The history really had lost its radical wings, and one of the reasons for that is accessibility. You know, $75 to go see a show downtown, or even for the smaller theaters, $30. Mm-hmm. and that and so the working class is immediately priced out of this. people that need change that most most hunger for change, dressing up and going and spending fifty dollars for an evening is not in their agenda
2: mm-hmm.
1: so that's an important element to all this. theater must reclaim that, and it is now I would say over the past ten years that's changed that's shifted greatly even even professional theater I see really reaching for especially after Black Lives Matters movement this summer that that's back to some to to a large degree that's back in both amateur and professional theater but it wasn't then it wasn't in the 90s or early 2000s and then i'll say too that activism i think has not appreciated the importance of history as much as it should the way that any kind of structures and systems are reinforced is through a historical narrative. A certain narrative is put out that reinforces the power structures and systems within a society. And a knowledge of alternative history, a knowledge of hidden history is always the first step in challenging dominant norms and in challenging injustice. So that's always the bedrock. But, but I, I didn't see activism turning to history 20 years ago or even 10 years ago. That's changed too. Now, you know, um, public history has been remade this summer. The statues coming down and we have neighborhoods and buildings being renamed. And that's beautiful to watch. The people, activists, young activists, realizing that that dominant narrative is reinforced through statues and through plaques and through place names Mm-hmm. Public history is kind of like the—it's like the concrete foundation that the whole empire is built on. Mm-hmm. And so, if you can—if you can remake public history, you can remake the narrative. And—and that—that's that, that, that's what the Romero troops always done is we've always challenged public history. A f- stage is a form of public history. Mm-hmm. It's fleeting public history. It's a public history for a night. Alternative public history for another night. And so it's been lovely to watch that consciousness shift, and because we all of our plays offer a kind of counter narrative, historical counter narrative.
0: Mm -hmm. That's such a good that's such a good point, and I love the way you frame that with things happening this summer and you know statues. And I hadn't thought of it this way, but I think the right in this country um, has done a good job, conservatism as a force in general, on claiming the past as theirs and as something where as an event in which they won that they want to continue winning in the same manner into the future you know make America great again it was great for us that's history and when you present you know the town I'm from is very conservative but and it took me years of being an activist before I learned that the Wobblies, the IWW paper was published there all through the 1910s. And there were these like rowdy street battles of IWW members versus silver shirts and Nazis all through the 30s in the town I lived in, you know, and just the power of learning those kinds of stories. So I guess I'm wondering maybe what a favorite Colorado version. When I met you in 2015, you all were doing a program on kind of like hidden Colorado history. And I just don't know if you have a favorite kind of similar story that was hidden that was a, a wow moment like that for other people who saw it.
1: Oh, I would say there's so many um, examples of that. You know, I would look at the treatment of activists in Portland and Seattle today, the way that the media portrays them and politicians, not, not just Trump, but even mainstream Democrats portray those activists. Apps is identical what the Wabs went through and it's in the twenties mm-hmm. that's a hundred years difference, but it's identical. And um, in Colorado there, you know, there was a IWW shut down the coal mines in this state for almost a year in 1927, 1928 and up to six or 10 people, miners were killed during that strike. There were, Kind of a hired, like a private army was hired and brought in, because during the Ludlow massacre, 14 years before, the National Guard was used to crush the strike, and so they couldn't do that again. So they, the next strategy was what to go out and hire these private guns, and no one knows about that story.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, the coal mines came to a, a halt, and the IWW, this was the United Mine Workers wanted to organize these men. But they, they were inept. They couldn't do it. So the uh, Wabs stepped in and did it. And they didn't just organize the coal miners. They went out into the beet fields and organized the migrant workers because those migrant workers would work the beet fields in the summer and then in the winter they'd work the coal mines. The Wabs had this incredible leadership involving people probably at 10 different languages.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Overwhelmingly immigrants. And I mean, they did it. They figured it out. <laughs> so yeah. So yeah. I think that that's, that's a model for today. Um, there's also, you know, stuff like in the 30s, the nativism against immigrants was so strong because of the Great Depression, immigrants tend to be the first ones to be scapegoated. So there was this heavy nativism. So the governor sent the National Guard to the border, n- not to the Mexican border, to the New Mexican border, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> the National Guard to the Colorado New Mexico border and their orders were declared martial law and their orders were stop anyone who looks poor or mexican <laughs> that's what they did and it, it, it lasted 11 days until i think the courts intervened realizing that this was pretty unconstitutional so there's so many stories and the thing is that to keep those stories hidden is to keep that old guard narrative alive. Mm-hmm. But to liberate those stories, the arts have to be the way to liberate those stories. And my students right now, their final project for the class is to write a proposal and research a proposal for the, a piece of public history that they would like to see replace public history that's being torn down. And it's, a, it's, it's been fun to, to throw this out at them and see how they're going to react to it. Mm -hmm. that's what the Romero Troop is. It's a mixture of liberating that caged history, that unknown history, and shining the light on the activism that is happening today that isn't understood or known. So the mixture of those two, we found, has been a pretty powerful thing to combine.
0: Yeah. And I guess just to back up into something you hinted at in your introduction, I'm wondering how that's played out for for you personally, because you kind of said, like your your entree into activism. As a, it sounds like you are a historian first and an activist second, and that those have really merged through the Romero troop. But I'm just curious about that story and what, what that journey looked like for you, just
1: on a personal level. I'm sorry, Taylor. The journey um, from a historian to, to an activist, or
0: yeah, or or what that looked like. I mean, you you kind of said you said something to the effect of when you were just starting to like dip a toe into activism, I guess I'm just wondering like, what was the yeah the inciting incident for you if there was a single
1: one or? Yeah, it was sort of a journey from one stepping stone to another, almost like crossing a stream on stones. The first was leaving the East Coast behind and moving West and developing an interest in poetry. And the second was deciding I wanted to see other countries and taking buses and trains all the way down to Panama. So I ran out of money and then coming back four months later and the people in Central America educated me about U S foreign policy, places like Nicaragua and El Salvador and Guatemala. And that radicalized me because I was, I was, I learned that I was lied to my whole life. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And that led to, um, a a realization that i wanted to learn history i didn't know any history so poetry love for poetry led me to want to see the world seeing the world led me to want to learn more real history and that led me to graduate school for history here in colorado and the more history i learned sort of real unknown history the more my appetite to make this Matter in today's world grew, and to make remake a classroom, remake the way teaching and learning happens, empower students through, you know, Fre- Paulo Freire is one of my inspirations to to invite students to essentially co-teach a class, and all of that, you know. And I remember when I when I began teaching, I my first form of activism is when nine eleven happened. There was you could feel it. We knew the country was going to war. Everybody did, and so a few colleagues and I formed a, something on campus called the Auraria Peace Initiative, and we put out literature and started meeting, and we started warning against you know, sending military to Afghanistan, and um, we went to the capital. We organized a march. And when that march, there was probably 50 of us, and that march left the Capitol when when we marched through Denver, downtown Denver, and just hearing the things people were yelling at us. Mm -hmm. You know, and I remember the the minute that march started, the the person leading it started to sing. And she was a a colleague, a friend of mine, a labor organizer. And she she had been, even though she was younger than me, she had been an activist for a while. African-American woman who, who was sort of doing Black Lives Matter movement work before there was Black Lives Matter movement. And she started to sing when we started the march. And tears just started rolling down my face because it was my first march. And I rem- I'll i never forget the feeling I had. This is who I am. And almost like, I don't know, I would maybe I would compare it to almost like a coming out or something. Like I felt liberated and things people yelled at us from the street Some i remember being called communist and traitor and all these words were used but anyway that that was it once i tasted that i could never go back
0: it's almost like a like a coming in right like
1: yeah you're like yeah
0: part of something now
1: yeah i like that i like that, that uh, you rephrase that yeah coming in um so so that began that immediately translated into my teaching and, and is still and still today. So yeah, the, the troop goes on. Um, it's been a lot of work. It's been, you know, stressful at times and overwhelming at times, but beautiful community that I used to think that the Romero troop needed me, that if I went if I went away the troop would go away and the Romero troop needed me. Now I believe that I need the remarriage, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I need that community. And it would be just fine if I went away, um, but I need it. So yeah. that's kind of how how it feels now.
0: Yeah. Jim's story about his first demonstration made me think about my own entry into street protest, also at anti-war actions. I've been to a lot of them, but I came back to one in particular where we marked the 13th year of occupation in Iraq. I remember noticing the war was now the same age i had been 13 when the u.s invaded the theme was taken from a slogan of the bread and puppet theater in vermont resistance of the heart against business as usual and my dear friend jan had made a big banner in that troop style for the event jan was my introduction to bread and puppet theater sharing perhaps a postcard with me of one of their prints and also before we knew each other I had seen the large puppets that she was responsible for bringing to our local anti-war demonstrations in Spokane. I want to leave Denver and my conversation with Jim for a moment and take you to rural Vermont, much later in the same summer when I shadowed the Romero Troops' rehearsal. On the East Coast leg of my trip, I didn't have a car, relying instead on trains, buses, and, in this case, Craigslist rideshare. I underestimated the size of Vermont and the remoteness of Glover, the closest town to Bread and Puppet. I had been messaging the one guy willing to drive up there and had started to worry he was going to flake out, leaving me no way to get to the circus. Finally, and just in time, he got it together and picked me up in a Burlington parking lot. He ended up being great, talking to me about his own background in radio through our two-hour drive. He even stayed for the circus. After the show, I eventually cornered the matriarch of Bread and Puppet, Elka Schumann, and talked with her about her family's role in radical theater history and in the present day. There's a good amount of background noise in this interview, and it made me surprisingly emotional listening to it. I hope that rather than distracting you, it can remind you, too, of the comforts of a crowded community kitchen, a long wooden table, and the simple pleasure of preparing a meal with a big group, closer than six feet apart. I wasn't able to reach the farm for a follow-up interview, but I hope you enjoy this slice of history. Here is that interview with Elka Schumann, taken August 9th, 2015. (laughs) ¶¶ you could just introduce yourself and a little bit about where we are and how you got here.
2: I'm Elke Schumann. We are sitting in in a room. We're sitting in the Bread and Puppet Farmhouse, which is the home now of the puppeteers uh, who are in our company and the summer puppeteers in the summertime. It was our home, our family's home, Peter and I and our five children for uh the 70s yes all the 70s six years while we lived when we lived here until we built our own house and then we moved there and this became the puppeteer house it's in vermont the northeast kingdom the most rural and i think the poorest part of vermont most beautiful um we really like it here Mm
0: -hmm. it is really beautiful
2: yeah
0: and uh can you just tell listeners who might not be familiar a little bit about the bread and puppet theater (laughs)
2: <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a puppet theater that includes many other kinds of performance arts besides puppets of all sizes from little small cutouts, paper mache, masked performers, life-size puppets, giant puppets, 18 feet tall, and even some larger, and then it in, includes dance, simple dance, a uh, lively band, brass band, playing lively brass band tunes, but also my husband, Peter Sherman's special uh, improvised music. He plays the violin, so that's used in a lot of shows. Singing is, is also very, very strong in our shows. Traditional early American shape note music. We also do classical music and then also improvise and uh, use the music and lyrics from friends. Poets in the area. We used to tour a great deal internationally in the old days, in the '70s, '80s, '90s. We tour a lot less now, more locally, do residencies in colleges and schools, and in the summer, every summer since we moved to Vermont, and that was in 1970, we've spent most or all the summer creating a piece. In the beginning, from 19. 19- 70 till, till 98 we had one weekend a summer we called that event our domestic resurrection circus it was a huge event that ended up drawing tens of thousands of people here um, after 98 we made it much much smaller just a sunday afternoon and actually every sunday afternoon in july and august and we get our audience in the hundreds, and that's fine. Mm-hmm. Bread, <laughs> I forgot to mention the bread, which is how I start the museum tours, is by the bread oven, where Peter bakes bread for every show, and it's given out in the... You saw how it was mm-hmm. given out in I the ate field. I yeah, yes. Bread with aioli, or garlic oil spread, and in the inside shows, we have a table and, and serve it at the end of the and the end of the performance. Mm-hmm. And Peter bakes it with help in the summer when there's such a big crowd here. So you so
0: he bakes it and you help in the summer. And uh, why? Why? No, I don't help. Oh, he, other he gets
2: help. Yes. Okay. Yes, because he's baking in the summer, at least four times a week, if not more often. And for the performances, even though the audience numbers only in the hundreds, he bakes gigantic loaves, like four feet long, and that's uh, in a big, big, big oven. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And can can you explain why that's the bread included? The bread is uh, uh, Peter jokes that the puppet shows are an excuse for him to bake bread and give it out to people. He learned baking from his mother as a child living in Germany in Silesia, which was then German, part of Germany, and is now Poli- Poland. Um, the bread of that region is a very pungent, strong, uh, rough ground, rye sourdough bread. And his mother baked and served that bread to her family for all her life, her very long life. Peter learned to bake from her and loved to do it, and he just continued doing it as a student um, for our family when we started our family. And then uh, when the theater began, he wanted the bread to be served, and he wanted somehow the bread and theater to be similar in that they're not froth and fluff and entertainment and sort of superficial (laughs) things, but Mm -hmm. that the bread is this very uh, rough ground sourdough rye and that the shows are make your mind, you have to chew (laughs) the shows over in your mind, whether it's because of the way they're done or the theme, and the themes are often very serious. A lot of our shows were protests against the Vietnam War, the Iraq War, um, political have political themes, and continue. But okay,
0: so you have to chew the shows, and they're heavy. That's they are right. Heavy That's themes. a good way to say it. Um, this the circus that I just saw mm-hmm. um, the overtakelessness. Yes. So is there? There's a different show every summer. Oh yes,
2: completely. And even in the course of the summer, since the circus is done for eight week weekends, eight Sundays, the show. Will change mm-hmm. acts will be ro- taken out as people maybe leave, or they get boring or irrelevant or something, and mm-hmm. then new acts are brought in. So, is the writing is the writing process collaborative? It is for the circus. It definitely is. It's uh, and puppeteers create their own acts often, but they the use the puppets and masks they use are mostly there. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, but the whole this whole. Enterprise with the museum, a hundred foot long museum. Oops. So there's a hundred foot long museum. Um, two stories of it, plus the storage. I I wouldn't say the museum is the tip of the iceberg, and the iceberg is storage. But certainly, the overwhelming bulk of stuff is in storage, and the museum has has shows less than half, less than probably a third or so of it. So and that even though Peter is the artist and directs the shows, he paints, he models the sculpture and paints the the scenery or the faces, but work to make these papier-mâché forms into puppets, into usable figures and so on is and the costuming and uh, all the work that is connected is done by has been done over these decades by hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people so and their input into shows is very important Mm -hmm. so often Peter will start a working on a show by saying people go find a mask and a costume and create a character and Mm -hmm. maybe in twos and threes show me what you what you've done what you have he will give the direction the Mm -hmm. kind of the outline of it or in some cases write a very exact text that is unspoken Mm -hmm.
0: So how um, how has this project, how has this big undertaking changed over the last I guess we're talking about fifty years, right? Mm,
2: plus Well, starting in New York City with just a few friends and acquaintances who are willing to join into the, you know, work on on, on projects in a in a small a loft that seemed huge when we got there. How yeah. has it changed? It's certainly gotten bigger. In the beginning the shows were, I mean we started with children's shows and then a lot of, um, we did a Christmas story every Christmas for 20 years or more and then an Easter story. The Christmas story was a mixture of hand puppets, uh, masked figures, puppets of different sizes and mostly pretty funny. But the Easter story, called also the Passion or the Puppet Christ, was a very serious show, more like a pageant, no to- almost no talking, but serious use of music, mm-hmm. and um, but that those two shows have been dropped now for a long time, and Peter's I think they getting more and more political, the the, the themes are that way. Mm-hmm. But it's also the input of the puppeteers, like all yeah. the, well, the gun acts. I have no idea how the So
0: how have some of the themes, obviously and unfortunately, we've had all kinds of nonsense wars this whole time, so that theme has probably remained largely the same. But um, how, how has that shifted? Um, or how, how do you feel about having been doing work
2: against war for all those years? Well, it's against... Um, I don't know how I don't know how to answer that. How do I feel? I, it seems really important to do and and using an art an artistic form instead of writing the speech or you know holding a sign. Although that's what I've done <laughs> many 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 anti-war rallies and demonstrations, often with small children you know at my side. But um, but it's very powerful to see. An artistic expression for oh. this feeling of, you know, against the war, against can a list? I can give the participants. A mm-hmm. um, but then seems like the gun violence making it into a joke. I don't know. <laughs> it's funny, but it's also a very mm-hmm. serious thing. Kind of
0: showing the irony,
2: you yeah. know, today in the circus, yeah. in the pageant, the yeah. life, liberty, pursuit of happiness uh-huh. section. Yes. Um, That's right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So I find it. Worse. Yeah. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I so so what um, what do you think? I mean, I I feel and is other people I've talked to feel that this is a really kind of special moment like the last few years in this country that people are kind of moving toward something. Um, what's what's your outlook on that? I, You're shaking your head like I, perhaps I, no.
2: I don't I mean, we live in the country, we listen to the radio. Uh, read the newspaper yeah. but okay, I don't did know. you. Eat, so anyway, so, I don't know how no, I, I, I don't have any thoughts. Okay. Uh, I think in a way, I remember last year a lot of the students who came here are not students, the interns or several of them said like, in my school uh, everybody's you know into, into fashion or into celebrity or whatever and I was thinking about more serious things and I felt I was in this little bubble and whatever and here, it's like everybody is on the same page of, of uh, something Theory, serious themes and putting them into an artistic context and expression but I, it feels I mean I'm, I'm aware that we are in a in a Vermont bubble here it's we're, we I mean, for eight years we lived in New York City and that seemed to be the whole world mm-hmm. and now for 40 plus years we've lived in the country and and it's lovely and beautiful and healthier and all that, Mm -hmm. but it isn't the real world when you, I mean, so much of the world is in such terrible, terrible conditions and we're surrounded by green trees and, you know, clean air and all this thing that isn't, that so many people lack, so I don't know.
0: It's still real. It's just it's real. not real it's, it's, elsewhere yeah, anymore. That's
2: true. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Yeah. it's not
0: more real than that. Yeah.
2: But what was your original question, thoughts on... Oh, just
0: it? what the, the time that we're the in. Time. I mean, is it is it different or is it always the same? Mm,
2: it, 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 it's both things because the wars continue and the protests against them, the stupidity of of the powerful, the cruelty of the powerful... And then, it seems like every now and then there's a real uprising, like a few years ago with the Occupy Wall Street that seemed as though that was going to make a difference, but did it? I, since Peter and I are both real ignoramuses about with te- modern technology, electronic technology, we're out of a lot of things mm-hmm. by that, and it's... It's, and we're not suffering from that but we are simply not as not knowledgeable about mm-hmm. what people are thinking and yeah. <laughs> yeah. just rattling off, no it's so. fine it's good. <laughs> no. it's good is
0: there is there anything else you want to add just for people um, if they want to if they want to come here
2: see the shows um, come but don't come Too many people once we suffered from, from that overload. Um yeah ending in 1998 when we just stopped doing the huge circus it had gotten too big and too out of control um, I don't know I, I feel more and more as I get older that both both the music we sing the sacred harp I the, um, the, the idea of mortality and finality is is on our mind and uh, some of the shows, reflect that, but not all. So that's yeah. yeah. a right. private so thing I have to discuss with it's people. Like, mm-hmm. so sure. so but he's always jumping on the next big so issue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, thank <laughs> you.
0: <laughs> in the Bread and Puppet Museum, and you can see this in the photo gallery that's linked in the show notes below, I saw an entire corner dedicated to a massive puppet likeness of Archbishop Oscar Romero, the Romero Troop's namesake with clippings and other art related to the 1980s Christmas pageant, the nativity, crucifixion, and resurrection of Archbishop Oscar Romero of El Salvador. If you want to learn more about Romero's life, there are a couple of links in the show notes below for that, too. Now let's head back to Denver by way of crackly cell phone connection for the end of my conversation with Jim Walsh, founder of the Romero Troop. Since we're revisiting, you know, part of why I want to revisit these stories... I, I had the, a feeling um, as someone into history and in movements that 2015 was like a precipice of some kind. And obviously it was. Um, and I think a lot of us felt that, that, you know, big things were, were going down. How, how has the work or the mood or the impact of the troop changed during the Trump years? I guess I'm working with the assumption that everywhere in the country there's kind of an influx of new energy and you know a lot to react to so I'm I'm really curious about how established groups and folks have taken that in stride and how your work has has changed or how your understanding of your work has changed
1: under these last four years five years yeah definitely a, a strong sense of urgency and a strong sense of the need to heal, the need to have a space where people can vent and find support. People talk a lot about that, about our group, our circle that we always have before we rehearse as a place where, a refuge maybe, Mm -hmm. where people can sort of let go of all that they're carrying. There's so much. A lot of people talk about giving up following the news and, and uh, discussed shock at this sort of fascist dimension to America that people had not realized was still. Mostly, I think, people who identify as white didn't mm-hmm. realize how alive that element was because they didn't have to deal with it. It was just hidden. And so the, the Trump election unleashed that underground... Dimension mention that so that that shock and disgust and all of what comes with it you know it's been a lot of what we do is just help people deal with those emotions and keep keep telling stories and but also so much of our work is in the immigrant community and we like we have a member who's been living in sanctuary for 18 months in a church basement we have a member who was her husband Oh, well, they're both members, but the husband was just deported six months ago, and his spouse, our, the other member of our troop, is a U.S.-born citizen, and they have four children, U.S.-born children. That's how insane this, this system is,
0: mm-hmm.
1: is that he was deported, and here, here he's married to a U.S. citizen with four U.S.-born children. So now she and the older and the younger children moved down there to be so they could be together so so anyway, we've been through these kind of firsthand accounts of how Trump world has demeaned and dehumanized the immigrant community and And that's been you know something that that's that's a he- been a heavy weight to carry, too, I think emotionally
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and I wonder is there is there any work? within the troop, i'm i'm familiar with the history-based work but is there an interplay with people telling oh. their own stories kind of a like theater of the yes. oppressed model like first person
1: yes yeah we we we've learned that helping activists see that their their stories of struggle today are part of a long trajectory that's powerful that's powerful you know the majority of activists not only have been denied access to a real histor- education around history, but don't have the time to mm-hmm. go and dive into history books. <laughs> yeah. So, yes, yeah, we even often will just tell a contemporary story followed by a historical story that relate directly. And then another contemporary story followed by an historical that relate directly. And, then, and we're doing that all night. And in doing so, the audience and the members see these struggles are not new. These are old struggles and it's empowering to know that people have come before us who have been through this, you know, so kind of honoring them and making sure that their stories don't die and making sure that the people doing the important work today are, are honored and highlighted, too, because they're, they're making this huge sacrifice and hope. And the baggage they carry is unbelievable. I mean, I consider myself an activist, but the amount of time and energy and sacrifice and risk that I take is nothing compared to the people who are really out there mm-hmm. putting themselves on the line, risking arrest and sac- their families don't see them often and all of that. Then activism is also this emotional sacrifice. Uh, relationships might break down and there's tensions within leadership and within membership and all, all of that has to be na- navigated too. So it's just unbelievable sacrifice what what activists go through, I think.
0: Yeah. And and telling that part of it is is important too. So I wanted to ask how um I'm assuming that y'all have gone digital distanced in some form during the pandemic and I'm wondering what your you know, the arts have obviously, especially performing arts, have been hit hard by this. And what, yeah, what's going on with that? What's your adaptation look like?
1: <laughs> wow, that's such a timely question. Um, we're struggling. We've been meeting for several weeks, virtually. We have stories that people have brought to us. Um, one is... You know, a story of, you know, um, a black man whose children were, had a gun pointed at them by Denver police and he's seeking some sort of redress or, so, so really important stories, but we struggled with how to exist in this virtual world. Um, So we started the sort of inching toward a a virtual show that would be live on Zoom, something like that, where we would tell stories and then open up dialogue, discussion, but the energy that we notice comes out of our face-to-face rehearsals hasn't been there. The tenants and the people stepping up to take on different roles and who has the tech skills to do this. And and we're starting to discover that even if we did push through and do it, it wouldn't feel, it wouldn't feel like everyone has ownership of it. It'd feel like it's just a few people in their basements edited something and put it together. And then we have what we call it. The Troop, and we, and then we don't even know what the audience experience will be like through a screen,
2: mm-hmm. or
1: if it is worth the energy and having it the kind of impact that we know our face-to-face shows have. We feel that in a very marrow of our bones. <laughs> we we go to bed those nights and don't sleep.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So so right now we are struggling with: Do we push through and, and and really try to make this work? Because we don't know how long it's going to be before it's safe to gather again and then there's a faction in the troop who just want to get together in an outdoor location Mm -hmm. um distanced and start working and eventually have a show in a park so there's a bit of a division about where we go
0: Mm -hmm. yeah that's it's so hard i mean theater is such a intimate medium and that's so much of what's powerful about it is that it's visceral it's visceral and it's all ephemeral. It happens once and then you tear it down and it never happens again. And that that's what I like about it a lot is that it's just if you were there, you were there. And if you weren't, I can try to yeah. describe it to you, but I probably will fail,
1: <laughs> you know? Yeah, it's like a concert, you know. You you feel it and you can't re remake it. You can't capture it. You have to have been there. And I think, you know, the the good thing is that we're sustainable. Mm -hmm. We can, we can outlast this because we don't have payroll or any of that sort of stress to deal with. We don't have to raise money. We have a solid, committed, close group of people and we're not going away. So even if we can't solve this, we're at least going to survive it just fine. And and I, I don't think a lot of groups can say that because The financial crisis that comes with this is immense for the arts.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And for, you know, like the 501c3 model formal activist organizations too, you know, I think it's really, there's a lot of parallels there. I want to finish, I want to respect your time and I want to finish by asking you, um, these are some questions that I was asking everyone when I interviewed them formally in 2015, that are just simple, but what frustrates you the most, day to day, right now? In general. Yeah.
1: Hmm. I think um, that's such a great question. My gosh, I I don't want to jump to the obvious confinement, quarantine, and economic insecurity, and all that. I think I would instead what frustrates me the most is um is how privilege works in a pandemic, I guess. In pre pandemic, privilege is also very apparent. But, you know, I just get tired of seeing that there's this Facebook, maybe it's a meme or something that's good I see even a lot of my friends have it stay the fuck home. And yeah, well what what about the people who have to go work to work? Mm-hmm. <laughs> They have yeah. to. You're gonna, you're gonna say that to them, you know?
0: <laughs> yeah. Who's um, who's gonna pick I, tomatoes?
1: Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Who is doing exactly. that? Not
0: who's going to, but who is doing that currently?
1: Yeah. So I think the privilege, the privilege that I see that I didn't see in such a clear way around pandemic etiquette hmm. has been really frustrating for me. That there is, a, there is a look in the mirror at your own privilege element to it that frustrates me to, to a large degree.
0: Yeah. And then I guess the, the flip side of that, what is giving you the most hope? Mm.
1: I think for me it's clear the rallies that I attended back in June were the first time in my life that it wasn't the same usual suspects hmm. It was in fact, th- I saw some of the usual suspects, but they were all on the margins and, and, and all older But the heart and the life of the rallies. I attended 16 and 17 year olds, the same people that have been denigrated as lazy and self-centered and all, all the caricatures of younger generations that we have to hear. You know.
0: mm-hmm.
1: And my goodness, talk about a generation showing up and essentially pushing aside the usual suspects
0: Mm -hmm.
1: and saying, it's our turn. We got this. Oh my God. I I just felt lucky to be a witness without even feeling like I was contributing anything. I said, I just kept saying to myself how, how fortunate I am to be, to bear witness. (laughs)
0: Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah and that they let us come at all that's how I feel (laughs) yeah yeah Yeah.
1: so courage of that moment and all of that stuff you know
0: great well thank you so much for taking time to talk to me I really appreciate it and the work you do I don't know if you have any last thoughts that you want to get out that I didn't ask about and also uh just plugs how can people find Romero Troop any other projects in your world that
1: you want to plug we're about to unveil a new web page and i would just like to um, well we don't have any shows to plug right now because we're spending no reels but you know taylor we have so few opportunities i don't know if you knew that this guy did make a documentary about us about eight years ago and it's available on youtube but we have so few opportunities to step away from our work and reflect on it so i think the work that you've done the interviews you've collected are wonderful archives for us
0: i'm in the process right now of um god putting my archive online oh yeah
1: well stay stay in close touch taylor
0: i will yeah thank you so thanks again to jim and elka and everyone who was hospitable to me at both the romero troupe and at bread and puppet theater thanks to all of you for listening if you enjoy the show please do subscribe rate it in the store share Check out the links in the show notes. You can also get in touch with me, find out how to support the project, much more at praxisradio.com. That's P R A X I S R A D I O.com. I also want to say that the day of the release is Indigenous Peoples Day. Talk about reclaiming public history. And I'd love it if you could check out the links in the show notes for more information about ways you can learn, about the people whose land you now live on, and also ways you can provide material support for Land Back and other current campaigns being led by Indigenous people around the country. Next week, we head to South Dakota to hear about the summer before Standing Rock. See you next week. Yep, see, so now it's a new thing. So you can say whatever you want and it'll be recorded in there.
2: You like it? Yeah. Yeah. Can you hear it? Do you like it? Can you hear you? So then, if you hit stop, if you hit